Um, I hadn't, I hadn't read any Jane Austen, so I don't know. I mean, she's was it Emma? She wrote Emma. Yeah, she wrote Emma. She wrote Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility. Oh, oh, oh shame so, on me! Have yeah. I not read those yet? Those she's and she's just she's a very wise author when it comes to which is how like in the 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 way relationships work um she's very funny i mean but it's very she's got this very dry subtle sense of humor um and there's a lot she had she lives she's living at the end of the era of high public morals Mm. and the Victorian era uh, no before the Victorian era okay so the Victorian era you get um, is an attempt to restore public morals because they've sort of dissolved oh. and fallen apart so <laughs> that never works the, well when you try and do it with it just force morality no it doesn't especially when you've bought into kind of the scientism the 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 philosophical modern you know, um enlightenment um and then you try and say but we want to keep the high public morals but i and i think you know queen victoria herself was she was quite a woman she was really a very good queen and um you know used used her position as queen to the limits of its power for good right so she she tried she did everything she could as queen to hold the nation together that didn't have the preachers doing their job, <laughs> which is the problem is you have the preachers uh, getting very um, enamored with the new philosophy uh, and, and making a lot of concessions and, and, um, but the, the, but queen Victoria doing her best to hold the line against the, the public, what would you what you call it the public um the what happens to a public morality when it goes that way so she's she's contemporaries with charles spurgeon um who you know he's debating uh darwinism i i i've always um you know i've read a lot of charles spurgeon biographies he's a hero of mine he's really wonderful wonderful godly man and but i've all there there's a great movie to be made in his debates with darwinism at the time so the charles spurgeon in london when charles spurgeon is there you have the first um, natural history of evolution set up in london and charles spurgeon goes and visits it he goes to see uh, and he comes back and he, he actually brings, he ends up getting a stuffed gorilla and bringing it up on stage with him on one, on a Sunday evening um, before a prayer meeting and telling everybody about, uh, you know, uh, this here, here's what I went and saw. Here's this evolution thing that, that they're arguing for. And, um, and basically saying you, uh, to buy into that, you would have to be the descendant of a gorilla. 
like the philosophy is so bad. It's, yeah. it's so they, they can't, but they don't see the underlying philosophy. Um, and Spurgeon is holding on to that, to the old medieval understanding that God created the world. And so everything has a nature. And if, if you don't, th- that you, um, one thing can't become another because it actually has a nature. It's not just a, a, the, 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 it doesn't happen to, it's not matter that happens to be in this shape that can be moved into another shape. So, right. you know, Darwin, he, they, they don't have, they haven't looked into a cell yet. So he says cells are just glo- globules um, is what he calls them that can be rearranged. So if, if, the, if the cell is the basic unit of things and it's just a globule that can be, that happens to be in this shape, but it's reshapable, then it makes sense. Then, then you know, you need something, a, a kind of underlying philosophy of reality um, that they, that they had bought into already before that, that made Darwin, that they were just looking for a mechanism for how things can change from one thing to another. They, they already bought into the fact that things do and can change from one thing to another by a process of evolution. What they didn't have yet was a, a, a biological mechanism, and Darwinism provided the biological mechanism About to explain what they had already bought into in philosophy. And there's a, just a, it's such a funny moment um, <clears throat> when, and, and I think it would make a great opening to a movie maybe called Charles versus Charles or something with Spurgeon. Cause Spurgeon and Darwin are, are contemporaries. So, um, Charles I, in charge. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's, it's one of those, it, you know, it'd make a, Spurgeon's life would make a great comedy. He, he was such a funny guy. Why haven't um, we done that yet? Why doesn't that exist? I think it's because when we have, whenever we do try to make a saint's life, we have, we make them very, um, we we have to make them very high minded, and but he his um, he, he's earthy. He's very earthy. One of yeah. my favorite stories. He liked to he liked to take Sunday afternoon walks in the woods, and so he had a uh, somebody visiting, and um, he the, there's a story in one of the biographies. It's, it's up here. I can't remember which one, but the he and a friend were out hiking, and this guy cracked a a, a joke. Um, and Spurgeon got laughing so hard that he had to sit down on a log because he was, he was wheezing, laughing so hard. And he got to the end of it. He said, Oh, let's pray. Lord Jesus. That was funny. Thank you for that. Amen. Whew. And he got kept going again, right? Like that's the kind of guy he was. Like he yeah. would laugh. He could laugh that hard. And for him, it was a gift. Like laughter was a gift. He, he, um, he mm. wasn't, he didn't tell a lot of jokes in the pulpit. He was a, uh, he's a powerful preacher. You know, um, when, when, uh, you know, my wife and I cut our, our newlywed teeth and in our, um, when we were newlyweds, we got, uh, the, the 10 volumes in five, um, from Baker books. It's his, the, the sermons of Spurgeon. And we read through those together. Um, and he's very powerful, preacher very uh, great exegete um, uh, um but what but that but there was a joy underneath everything that he did that was the strength of all that he did mm-hmm. and um it was a really you know he he um 
lived at the same time as a lot of the what became the fundamentalist movement. Um, Dwight Moody, you know, all of that. And um, he actually respected Dwight Moody quite a bit, even though they disagreed on a lot um, because he, he met him and because he was a godly man and, and um, because he was out doing the work of an evangelist, which, which Spurgeon was doing, but God brought people to him consistently. People would get saved. Um, uh, Spurgeon was a, a very effective evangelist, but he didn't have to travel to do it. And other people did travel to do it. And he saw the need for both. And, right. um, but Moody um, and a lot of the, other parts of that that movement were more known for what they didn't do than for what they did do um and he but spurgeon would still have those preachers in even though they would disagree on things so there was one one gentleman that came in and he uh to an evening service and he was preaching and he was telling the story of how god uh rescued him from tobacco addiction and how you know he was so free now that he no longer smoked and Spurgeon went up and he prayed, you know, thank you, Lord, for your delivery of this man from the slavery to tobacco. And then at the end, he said, I was so, so moved by that story that I plan on going home and smoking a cigar to the glory of a God who can rescue a man from slavery to tobacco. <laughs> <laughs> right? Just, so and to be able to, I think, rightly make that distinction, right, that that this guy Right. If that was a real problem, right? People really do get addicted to tobacco. That's a real thing. Yeah. And Spurgeon looked at his cigar smoking and said, but it's not, it's, this isn't a problem for my conscience. And I can glory in the fact that God rescued this man from a slavery to this thing that I am not, uh, that isn't a problem for me. And, um, and you know, that, those sort, that sort of jolly, joyful um, ability to make, good moral distinctions and then to just love the text of scripture um, and, and preach it so powerfully out of, you know, he, one of the, one of the things that he did um, that I, that I brought into my ministry when I was there was he had 10, he had, I believe it was 10 steps up to his pulpit and he took each step and deliberately reminded himself that he believed in the Holy Spirit, right? That the Holy Spirit was the one who gave, made the, the powerful, the work of the preaching powerful. And so each step he reminded himself, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, right? On his way up to preach. Um, and that it's not a method. It's not, I mean, he was an eloquent gentleman, but it's, it's not his eloquence that made him powerful. It was the work of the Spirit. And he knew that and he reminded himself of that every Sunday. Um, and so the, the, uh, that was one of the, one of the, I think, blessed, blessed habits, uh, preach, preacher habits that I, um, use as well. We only had four steps up to our pulpit in California, but. So you had to like, do a lot more work before you get, <laughs> really, <laughs> yeah. really believe it before you get. Well, not, yeah, the, um, we, yeah, there, there's, the, you know, the, the, um, I had a, there's another, uh, I can't even remember the name of the, the Anglican preacher that talked about preparing for preaching on Sunday morning. And he had, so they, you know, they, uh, in the Anglican tradition, in one part of the Anglican tradition, there's, you know, you wear different, there's different aspects, you know, you put on a cassock and then you put on a robe and then you put on a, um, 
the belt, which symbolize, and and each of them have a symbolic meaning. And so there was a series of prayers um, that went with the the preparations to dress that had to do with you know um, the the promises of God to the preached word. And so you each aspect you had there was a different prayer attached to the garment that that was a reminder. Uh, it was a reminder to the preacher that this all depends upon the work of God. And it was a remind, and then it was a prayer to ask God to bless the, the, the preaching of the word. And we, and I didn't, we didn't, I didn't, I mean, we didn't wear a cassock and I didn't wear a cassock. I didn't wear a robe and didn't any of that. I think you've got the freedom to wear it or not wear it and all that. But, um, but I did take the prayers into my preparations as you were putting on your tie um, in the morning in your blazer. What well, was it, it was, I, it would, um, it was, uh, not the tie in the blazer. It, it was, as I took my wallet out, I left it mm. and it was, or it set me aside, uh, from worldly cares to care about uh, mm. the kingdom of God this morning. I took, took my keys out and left them there and then, uh, picked up my Bible and my sermon notes and just attached a prayer to each of those things. Um, so that it, which was Lord, Lord set me aside for the, the work of your kingdom, Mm -hmm. um, set aside, set aside my mind, set aside my heart, set aside my mouth Mm -hmm. or make the words of my mouth uh, acceptable. Um, so just so, but it was all about, this is, um, the work of the, is all the work of Christ. Right. And, um, I mean, I think Spurgeon exemplifies that, um, yeah, but the, you've got people in every tradition exemplifying that. Um, I mean, one of the one of the best sermons I ever heard about two preachers about preaching was from uh, a high church, um, a high church. Like, I don't even know what you'd call him. High church Anglican um, in the Newman tradition the, the the ones that that have all of the you know the 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 the, the psalm singing anglican tradition um that where it's where they are they tried to keep as much of the medieval catholicism as they could mm. externally um and this guy gets up and he just he he's he's wearing the cassock he's wearing the robe and he he blasts trusting in them and to uh, versus trusting in the spirit and the power of the word. And he Mm. gets up and he says, you are declaring the word of God to people made by the word of God, made of the word of God, saved by the word of God. And it is your job to declare to them the word of God only so that they will be restored by the word of God. And I was like, it was one of the most powerful sermons on preaching that I've ever heard. And it was in a tradition that, doesn't honor preaching the way other traditions do. And it was, Mm. it was beautiful. And, you know, he's just a godly man who saw the temptations of his own tradition and made sure to point them out. Um, You know, that, I think that's it. it, We always want to, we're always looking for some external way to justify ourselves. And it doesn't matter what tradition you're in. You will find it. You'll find it. Right. And so, um, and so you've got, 
it, it's easy to grab onto one tradition and say, I am justified because I'm a part of the right group yep. rather than yep. I am justified because Jesus and his work, you know, yeah, you we'll fight over right groups. out the gate. I'm, <laughs> no, you know, actually, so while you're in the preaching mode, there's a couple things. So, I, so I've been really excited about this whole week. You didn't send me anything to read, so I'm kind no, of disappointed. This week. It's no, been, it's been it's been crazy week. It's good. That's good. That's good for you because crazy week means things are going, things are moving. Yeah. Um, but there's two things that I've been thinking about. There are three. Let me just say three. Um, what time do you have to be done? Um, like 1030, okay. 10 so, just so I can mark this out for myself, how much I can have this conversation. Um, three things have been last week. The thing that really bubbled over was when we talked about what kind of world this is. Um, it's a world f that is an overflow of triune love, right? That's what the world is. And that's been really like everything that I've hit. And I saw I think I texted you. I saw Puss in Boots, the yeah. the second film of it. They, uh, they killed that. That movie's so good. Messed me up, dude. It's such a good <laughs> film. It is such a good film. And the character that they put in there was just the the uh, burrito. <laughs> like I'm not gonna spoil. Uh, maybe I'm gonna spoil it, but it's just he's 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 the one that you're like i want to be like him like that's who i yeah. i want to be and puss is great and his kitty soft paws is awesome and the the person who you want to be like is burrito that's who yeah. like you're like that's the who you want to be like um but so that's it's, go ahead which is that's like that's that is classic shakespeare where the character that at the beginning you're laughing at right turns out to be the one with the wisdom right the, because Interesting. We li we live in a world where the, God hides the wisdom mm. in the place that the wise that the wise in their own eyes won't look. Right. right? And, and so and that I mean that was one of my favorite things about it is where did the where the whole time you're laughing at this character and the next thing you know he is the he's got the solution. I mean Shakespeare does that. He puts the he puts the solution in the wrong mouth. The, quote unquote wrong mouth. Right. Um, because God does that. So that the wise in their own eyes won't find it. Mm. Do you this, this movie was I, mean, I was saw it twice. The movie was Well just, yeah, was, I'm gonna watch. Do you think they know what they did? Or do you, I don't know. It's so hard. What's so hard is and I've I've been discovering this more and more. Um God puts his people all over the place. Yeah. Um, and in the entertainment industry, God has placed his people strategically where he wants them um, to be salt, right? To, to keep things from spoiling. You, when you look at something like Strange World, you see what happens when there's no salt. I haven't seen that. that so oh, that's it's terrible. Disney, Disney's Strange World? Yeah, it's yeah. terrible. I figured it's it would world. be. Yeah. One of the worst screenplays I've ever seen. It was gorgeous. I, you know, I'm um, the... But and it, the screenplay was just awful, um, and it was it was preachier than most Christian movies. You know, it's just they were preaching yeah. a different. Uh, they were just preaching secular humanism, and it was just it was just badly done, badly executed storytelling. Um, but you know, I uh, when you hear stories about something like the movie Mulan um, and that 
that God put some Christians really high up there who fought against that. They wanted to make it a Buddhist movie. Um, and they, and Christians that fought to make it, uh, instead of a story about a father and a daughter. Mm. And so you end up with a movie, um, that's powerful and uplifting and, um, rather than uh, a movie that was Buddhist and, and, uh, and, and, and destructive, right? So, and, and so you just look at something like Puss in Boots, and you think, "Who's on that? Who's on that? Yeah, <laughs> who wrote that? Who?" Because um, they got away with arguing for like something. Every story is rhetoric; it is yep. an argument, yep. right? Um, and they got away with arguing for for reality right yep. argue um yep yeah it was amazing so that between so that was that's been hidden and the so last week when we talked about the, what kind of world this is and then seeing that character live in that kind of world in an animation the rhetoric that came from it was really powerful and those things put together was like we had a great family worship after that and conversation and it's been boiling up ever since then this between our conversation about what kind of world it is and then seeing a character apply that kind of wisdom in the world with brokenness to it that's what was so interesting it wasn't that the world it's because the world is broken because of sin but when you know what kind of world it is even the broken pieces resemble something of what should be Right. So <laughs> and that's what's amazing about it is and and there's a line from um, David Shilton in his book and Paradise Restored where he says everybody is trying to get back to the garden. Mm-hmm. Every form of, of morality that people put up of religious. They're trying to get back to the garden, but they can't. They can't get back to the garden without Christ. Right. And so and when you realize that you're seeing is that he just kind of took all these shattered pieces that we see and, and kind of rechange the, the, the imagination of what it is because we have a different kind of imagination of what type of world it is. We see the shattered pieces and like, well, this was nothing, right? We see the shattered pieces and think because it's broken that there's, this is nothing. It doesn't have any intent. We can do whatever with it we want. No, no. These are like pieces of the puzzle that go back together. <laughs> right? right. And, 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 and so when you see the world and then you see Christ come into the world, you see him putting and restoring all things that are broken, right? And what he does. And then how you operate in that world actually has a transformative effect because of the Holy Spirit working in what right. Christ has uh, attained. And so it just transforms the way you think about everything. And so when we talked last week about prayer and doing prayer this week, I got super excited because I started to see things differently, right? The, the puzzles look differently. I'm like, how does prayer fit into this? Um, if you have, if you understand prayer with a broken metaphysic, what is it like to understand prayer with a properly restored metaphysic? And then other things started happening through the, in, the last week. And I started thinking about the post-millennial worldview and the split of it. Remember we talked about that a while ago? Yeah. And I, yeah. I kind of wanted to revisit some of that. And I don't even know if it ties into some of this, but I think it does. There is now we have kind of the post-millennial um, split that's mostly inside of the liberal camps. Post-millennialism split itself from um, kind of conservative doctrine. I, and 
and you said that the fundamentalists went one way with the preservation of the of the text and the and the words, while the po- by the post millennial liberals and those traditions went another way, uh, where they went activation in the culture, right? Active, yeah. active, active, but with no gospel, yeah. right? And so what you got is a whole bunch of morality. And the reason I'm bringing this up, the reason I want to talk about this is because looking over the last year and thinking about last year and kind of the reflexive attitude that we have, I was thinking, like, um, what does it look like for a fundamentalist to actually have hope of the effect of the gospel in society to the point that he starts making plans or at least really, really points to the direction of what the gospel looks like when it succeeds. Here's an example. Missionary work. When we go to a place to do missionary work, we don't expect in 50 years that those people will still be butt naked, you know, fighting with swords and arrows. We expect a certain type of advancement in the technology. We expect things to go from tents to um buildings to, you know, skyscraper, whatever. We expect advancement all the way through from just not just the soul of the person, but from the way that he lives in society. We expect the tribes around them to have better relationships with each other because of the gospel. We expect things to go from dirt to paved roads. We expect a, we, that's what we are looking at. We don't expect them to be the same as when we found them. And so right. we can see that when it comes to other nations, but we don't really get to see that. We don't think about it that way when it comes to our own society and culture that we're in. We're like, it's doomed. It's done. Find your cubby hole. Be as Christian as you can and run. Right. Like and uh, uh, preserve yourself. And so the, thinking about how Christians in America, are at least or and if we build something in America, what we build is direct alternative to what the secularists build. We never think about, yeah. hey, what's the next level? What's the big right. thing beyond that? And so we, we because we've been detached from this, the post millennial side of this a real post-millennial site attached to the gospel. Um, and should I say mostly an eschatology that's attached from the gospel. We have this broken application of the gospel when we apply it. And I'm not thinking yeah. of just like dispensations. I think even reform folks have this. And so, yeah, for sure. So Jason, I well, guess the, I'll, I'll let you go to say, but I, when, I, when I was thinking of, I kind of want to go back to say, when did that split happen and where did it happen and why? And and kind of work from there, and then I figure we'll get into prayer in the, right in the middle of that somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So my so here, I'll, I'm going to back into it. So I beep um, beep beep. <laughs> you me fat. Hey no, man. Um, yeah. We had so when I um so when I became post-millennial or optimistic in my eschatology um, because that was the real change. It wasn't the relationship between the millenniums for me because I was never a dispensationalist. And, you know, uh, the, it, when it was mostly switching from a very pessimistic understanding of the effect of the gospel on, on society that I had just assumed nobody – had necessarily come and explained it. It was to a part me. of the culture. It was just part of the culture. Yep. Um, when I went from that to an optimistic understanding, what happened was, I, I so I was in the PCUSA when I came to the Lord and was baptized there, and and I got 
what what I think of as the very best of the PCUSA. So mm. none of the pastors that I had are still in the PCUSA, if that makes sense, right? They all were pushed out by the by their opposition to gay marriage, really. That was the thing that um, <laughs> really? dissolved it dissolved the so this is the nine you know it's the nineties and so they're they're there fighting. I they I didn't see any of that fight. I was just a new Christian and they were like, Hey, yeah, read your Bible. Um that was where I was introduced to Calvin's Institutes. I had a pastor in the PCUSA that read through the institutes constantly, right? So once a year he made it through the institutes and it was just a part of his his so it's just a wonderful one. I just what I was so blessed in the PCUSA. My wife and I both were um, from our youth pastor, who was just wonderful, godly, joyful man who shared the gospel, loved Jesus. He was um, theologically he was a Wesleyan, um, knew he was, didn't really like Calvinism particularly much, but loved Jesus and taught us to love Jesus and to and to love the scriptures and all that. Um, to uh and uh took a particularly you know fatherly interest um in my wife who didn't have the 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 home life that um that (laughs) that encouraged godliness and um you know she was and then uh, i had an older gentleman who was uh, a lawyer in town who basically gathered up all of the fatherless teenagers boys um and took them through the bible consistently it was wonderful so i had a great experience well one of the things that happened though was um i was warned in the church to not become a fundamentalist because uh you know all, all the time and then i was warned by my christian friends uh my other christian friends to not become a social gospeler because that's the big problem of the PCUSA is the social gospel that the mm. tra- the transformation of society is the um, is the goal is the the that's what that's what the gospel is for and so whatever it takes to transform society is gospel right and so you get mm. straight up socialists that look at that and say okay well let's go this is so the the church is a government or it, the church is a voting block whose job is yeah. to bring about social change right so because the government is the the power that changes society and so it's our job to change the government so that society will be changed right you really do um that really was there in the PCUSA and when i look back i can actually see where i was running into it but i didn't recognize it at the time i was a brand new christian i was just devouring the Bible over and over and over. And, and uh, um, you know, John Gerstner, who um, was, he was uh, the guy who discipled R.C. Sproul. He was a PCUSA, early PCUSA pastor. And there was a huge, there's like the, the, a bunch of works from John Gerstner in the church library that I was pointed to. So he was the guy that <clears throat> was, he was R.C. Sproul's go-to discipler. I was reading his books in the BCUSA church library. Um, who knows if they're even there anymore, but at the time I, I didn't even realize I was the only one using the church library. It, it was like a, a dead, um, a dead unit. Um, and so at one point I was, I was late bringing one back and I w- went to try and find somebody to say sorry to. And they were like, wait, 
You're, you're checking using out it. Works. <laughs> <laughs> so I go and I open the box where you fill out that you're checking something out. And it was just a bunch of my cards that I had been putting in there. Nobody was even checking. It was really funny. So I was, but I, but I, I was pointed to the church library by one of the Sunday school teachers. And, um, so anyway, the, uh, the, the fear of the social gospel um, was real. And it was a, that the point of the gospel is to transform society. And, um, and that individuals, uh, if they understand the gospel, then what they they do is they spend their time trying to transform society. Mm. So it really was uh, there was it was a, uh, an ex- externalism. It was a um, <clears throat> it was uh, generally um, focused on the the um, are we an influence on the government or not. And the PCUSA, that you know, they had a large fund that was used to pay Democrats. I mean, it really was. I mean, that was a real problem. I, I didn't know any of this at the time. I wasn't particularly wow. politically active or anything. Church um, offering going right to <coughs> politicians. Yep. Go right to politicians. So that was a um, <clears throat> the and then Ooh, the, Jesus would have been beating some folks. <laughs> they would have been right. <laughs> Excuse me, but the first pastor that I had there ended up getting fired for calling abortion sin from the pulpit, and that was kind of the turning point for me. Um, is I was like, oh wait a second, there might be something like th- there's a, a major issue going on here, right? And so, what time frame that is church? That? This was the 1994, 90, wow, probably. Okay, right. So, um, and I, as a brand new Christian, I'm like. What is going on? And so I've got some folks trying to help me through it. But anyway, we did stay in the PCUSA forever um, because it was, I was told by a pastor, hey, don't get on a sinking ship. Let me help you find a better denomination. Mm. Um, and he wasn't there much longer after me either. So, um, but the uh, the eschatology um, was split between fundamentalists and social gospelers, right? And I had been taught to have an optimistic eschatology, so to speak, about my own sanctification, mm. right? The gospel will change you, mm. and they and it was true. It was right. I you know I I have people that knew me before I was a Christian that then run into me later are like, whoa, you're not the same. <laughs> and it's obvious that I'm not the same. Um, when, you know, when I walked, when I rollerbladed through the doors of a church, I had highlighter yellow dyed hair that, that was down to my chin in the front and sh- cut short in the back, right. And all combed forward to cover my face. And um, you know, the, 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 uh, um, Versus, you know, who I end up becoming and who I was then completely, the sanctification is real. And I was taught to expect it, right? Dig into the scriptures, dig into the gospel. Um, You know, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, pointed to Martin Lloyd-Jones, learn to preach the gospel to yourself. Like all that stuff, you expect sanctification to happen. Um, One of the men that, taught Sunday school there at the church um, was post-millennial. Uh, he was, he handed me Chilton 
uh, Chilton's um, commentary on Revelation when I said, hey, I'm curious about the book of Revelation. It doesn't make any sense. He said, this will make sense of it. Here's 950 pages of David Chilton's commentary. That was the first commentary I ever read um, at all and uh, that I ever used. And he taught me how to use it. And well, and when I started realizing that this is a different thing, this is optimistic eschatology. Um, Days of Vengeance. That's what was the book. Days of Vengeance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, uh, this, he said, well, do you, do you want the Christmas hymns to be true or do you want to not? And I was like, what do you mean? And he started reading me, um, joy to the lyrics to joy to the world. Right. And he, and he, um, and when I realized that this is just sanctification, corporate sanctification, right. It's the same doctrine i've already taught to trust in it's just corporate right not and and that's this is how it was described to me was we expect the gospel to change us individually but when the gospel gets um in we're told it also is that it doesn't just stop with us that it actually extends beyond us um and it it changes the world for good and i thought okay well that makes sense to me, right? Um, but I still had this weird understanding uh, that that fundamentalism and the social gospel, you had to pick between them, right? And so, and obviously, you're going with the ones that still hold to the Bible, no matter what, right? Because the scriptures are are where the, the our hope has come into the world, where we encounter Christ, and where you know, all of that. Um, it is the the word of God, and it, and um, and I, my experience with it, as well as my understanding of the scripture, all of it was that it was, it was true. It was the standard by which everything else was judged, right? As as high a an understanding of the, of the scriptures as you can get, um, I had I had, um, so I what I but I didn't. But I so I was trying to figure out why is it that I'm being told I have to choose between an optimistic understanding of the gospel and believing the Bible is true. Um, when I'm looking at somebody walk me through the Bible and show me that I should expect the nations of the earth to be changed, that that um, the kings of the earth uh, have overthrown themselves at the cross, and all you know that. Uh, um, that all the Gentiles of the world will rejoice, uh, and you know, being that the curse is being rolled back. Like I'm learning all this stuff, and trying to figure out why why is it that I'm wh- why is it that I was told that you have to choose between total depravity and uh, and a cross that solves the problem of total depravity and optimistic eschatology, and uh, so as I and you then you then you discover you know Jonathan Edwards. Um, he he was the first historic post-millennialist or you know post-millennialist in history that I read. He is also historic post-millennialist. Not uh, it's not a uh, preterist, but he you know, you read him and you think, oh man, this is this used to be the position of uh, of what you would think of as conservative Christians. The conservative Christians were the ones that believed in the progressive nature of the gospel, that the gospel progressively um, 
restores the world to the garden. And it's not just a garden at, at, at the end, it's a garden city, right? Garden that, city, that, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. advanced, so yeah. It advances beyond the original. Um, and but what and what you discover is that it is that same era where Spurgeon, um, so Spurgeon was sort of an optimistic premillennialist, right? He he still had the optimism, he wasn't post-millennial, and I think that's that's why optimism rather than um relationship to the millennium, I think is the important question. Are we optimistic about the gospel? Whether Jesus comes back before the millennium, after the millennium, all of that we can discuss. And I think it's, it's interesting, but I don't think it's the right question. The right question is, does the gospel uh, undo the works of Satan? Right? Does the gospel right. undo the curses? Um and not all of them because Jesus comes back to finally undo death, which is the center of the curses. Right. Um, so you, you never, you don't end up with First a Corinthians 15. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But do we expect the gospel to work? Do we go out? Do we, can we preach the gospel by faith? Um, believing it's going to work and transform it. Well, during that Victorian era, what happened was the, uh, the, that progressive understanding of the uh, of the undoing of the curse was secularized and it there was um the the group the the people that were running with the optimism um they were trying to have the optimism without jesus right and so um they started to talk about the, the a all the different mechanistic ways we can push the push the progression uh, of the world towards an end um, without Jesus, and that it was going to push beyond religion. It was going to push beyond um, beyond uh, capitalism, and uh, it was going to push beyond these these species. Depending on which which secularization you took, there was a different mechanism. Um, but they were all, everyone was developing a mechanism of progress that w- worked, um, that, that was a, wor- a worldly or, or a self-contained, a non-supernatural um, uh, way, a non-gospel preaching way of advancing the human race to maturity. Um, and in opposing it, um, the... They, the doctrine of total depravity was the thing that they were leaving behind. And so the doctrine of total depravity became the marker of what, uh, in, you know, in the right way, it became one of the central markers of are you orthodox or not? Mm. Do, do you believe in the fallen nature of mankind? But then they because started that. Yeah, go ahead. So is it because that that they're, they're making – there's a couple questions here. One is it, why is it that the Victorian era is deciding to make this turn, right? Like what's happening that they feel like they need to have this type of progress after so long and to do it without Christianity? That's one. The other one is are they making total depravity – the conservatives are making total depravity the marker, right? Yeah. Because they're trying to say – Anytime you try and manipulate man's morality apart from understanding what type of being he has become through sin, then you you can't 
there's no answer except for a redeemed man. Yeah. Right. So the so the the fundamentalists, the conservatives, they end up being called fundamentalists about 50 years later, but it was um but, but that was and it was a name they they created for themselves, right? Mm. Because we hold to the fundamentals of the faith. The fundamentals of the faith um, J. Gresham Machen helped write the the um, the series of books called The Fundamentals of the Faith um, that was defending the all the apostolic creed, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, that all the uh, and the definition of Chalcedon. It was a book series defending those doctrines, right? So the doctrine of the virgin birth was one of the things that the progressives wanted to jettison, and then and um, and I believe it was Machen that actually wrote the defense of the virgin birth. So um, in this series, so you have um, the the jettisoning of uh, of what would be thought of as supernatural doctrines, um, right? And the reason was because they wanted to retain the respectability of the academy. That's always what it is. It's that's one of our central temptations in in the the because so. What happened was in the Reformation, the academy and the state both came to the defense of the gospel over against the church. Oh, interesting! Right. It's so backwards. It's backwards, but it, but that it's that's historically what happened, right? Okay. So the church, the institutional church, starts making it illegal to to preach the gospel, and uh, you know, it's it's, it's a it's a, and it turns out to be an absolute disaster. Well, the academy in um, in the south and the state in the north, uh, up in Germany, come to the defense of of the gospel and carve out a space where the gospel can be preached. So you've got the um, you know Oxford and you've got uh, Geneva and these places where where does God raise up somebody to come? rescue the church with the true gospel out of the academy um up in the north up in germany and uh, you have the prince hide martin luther away to defend him over against the assassins of the pope right so you've got uh well what happens though is so we say that we recenter society instead of around the church it ends up recentered intellectually around the university and sociologically, um, civically around in the state, because those were the places where the gospel was being celebrated and defended. Mm. When the, when it stops, though, when they when those places also go corrupt, because um, you know my, my uncle calls it the uh, the planned obsolescence of of human institutions, right? That that God expects human institutions at some point to become obsolete that there are that the three that you've got the institutions that god has established those ones never become obsolete but when we establish other things they're important for a time and then they're going to parachurch go ministries because, yeah parachurch yeah, ministries yeah, yeah. that yeah and um and that's not that's just a design feature we don't because we we god is always pushing us back to his his the institutions that he's established, but they go corrupt and he raises somebody up. And the job is then to move that health back into the 
the central institutions, the family, the church, and the and the civic government. So, um, when the when those things become obsolete again, though, we don't want to lose the 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 church doesn't want to lose the respect of the academy, even though the academy has is buying into um, really the Hegelianism is the is the central problem. Um, wow. Uh, and so you've got this attempt to hold them both by naturalizing Christianity, de-supernaturalizing Christianity, trying to turn it into the greatest of the natural religions. Um, because uh, natural religion has a place in the progress of humanity. Supernatural religion, though, is has to is a relic. It's a thing of the past, and you're not you're on the wrong side of history if you hold to supernaturalism. So you've had to have your uh, moral imagination re- redeveloped way before you ever get here, because you have to drop something that you understand about the world in order right. to buy into that reality exactly so you you have already bought into um wow kant's version of the world that says the supernatural is up there and it doesn't touch the natural um outside of in the mind of man the mind of man is the only thing that is the ladder between the supernatural and the natural right so that's the the kantian metaphysic um the supernatural well it's only half a step to well, do we really even need the supernatural? Right. If, right. If, if it's in my mind, itself? then yeah. I'm God. <laughs> That's yeah. the jump, pretty much. And you have you have people opposing um, Kant in his day, but he just wins out. He 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 wins the day because the church um, has bought it buys into that. For the sake of respectability, mm. the church play, plays along. Right. Mm. And rather, rather than saying, and um, rather than saying what, like what Spurgeon does is he says, so you think you're all descendants of gorillas, huh? Well, maybe you are considering how bad your philosophy is. You'd have right? to be a gorilla to understand You'd have and to believe be that. A gorilla yeah. to, to buy into that nonsense. Which is funny because that's exactly what they're doing to you though. Like they're right. saying, you're, you believe that God exists you know you believe that there's a supernatural a girl can get pregnant <laughs> from from a spirit overshadowing her oh my goodness <laughs> right they're 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 laughing at you on that side of it and what we tend to do is be like well let me defend this really good <laughs> right? and they're like and you have another guy's like you you think you came from a monkey and I guess yeah. you must be one because you have to be pretty much idiot to believe this stuff. <laughs> and it's, and that's exactly it. Is when you recognize that it is a story. It's a storytelling war. Uh huh. That's been going on Jason, since the garden. Doggone man, you say this all the time, and it's one of those things that I think we say, but we don't understand that though. We say that, and then the last thing we do is tell a story. You know right. what I mean? Like right. I, yeah. I, I've, I've, we've been talking now for a year and, you know, it's so easy to be because we are so illiterate, because we have so little wisdom. We think because we're getting educated that we're engaging in storytelling or because we're educating, we're, we're engaging in story, and we're yeah. not. And that's one of the things you and I have been talking about is like we got to get people to start understanding, like until you start telling the stories, 
<laughs> right? Like, right. And, well, then, and, and I think this is, and what's so hard is we, we're behind because we have, we have walked away from the gospel as a story, right? And defended it as a set of doctrines. Um, instead of both and. Instead of both and, right? Instead of saying, well, the, these doctrines are story summaries, and this story is the living doctrines, right? Jesus and it. Uh, it That's right. Uh, but, th- but that includes history as part of the, um, the, the progress of the gospel is part of the good news. Right? The, the gospel is a story that is, um, is summarized as Jesus was born of a virgin. Right. 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 Lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was buried and dead three days in the tomb, was raised from the dead on the third day, spent 40 days with his people, ascended into heaven and then poured out the Holy spirit on us. Right. That's the summary of the gospel. Um, and the, the continued progress of the the good news continues to be active in the sense that when you preach that story, when you preach Jesus, um, it, it transforms a place. It transforms people. It transforms peoples. It trans, you know, it, it, it has the effect that it has in the world continues to be a part of the good news. Um, and the fact that Jesus is going to come back and complete the work that, that his resurrection is just the first fruits of is that's part of the gospel as well. Right. So, so we live that future into the present by faith as we look at what it's going to be like after the resurrection and say, let's do it now. Right. So, the the gospel isn't isn't it's something you can summarize, but it's not something you can contain. Mm. It's too big of a story. Um, but we we have we have gone illiterate, even in our own stories and small stories. I and mean, we just I just went and saw. Um, I want to dance with somebody. Right mm. uh, last night, Aaron and I went and saw the Whitney Houston movie. Uh, I've been looking forward to it. Whitney Houston is one of the greatest singers of all time. And I, and I knew, you know, you know, it's a tragedy or her yeah. life is tragic. Um, is that a tragic comedy? It's well, it's not even, it's not even a tragic comedy because I mean, they, I think, well, here's, here's what they did though. So this is what, this is why they are winning the storytelling war they organized her entire life around a lesbian encounter she had as a teenager. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And I didn't even know that until now. That's I didn't either. Much, my, neither my wife and I didn't. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. So how, and, but what they do is they basically the argument of the movie. Now, now if, I, I, mm. if, if, you know, it, assuming that she did, have all that and it's not somebody making that up a story and trying to you know um profit off of a dead whitney houston worth with something i assuming it's that every fact they got is true um the what they how they told the story was it's like a reverse captain america if so society believes a lie that this is wrong 
And because of that, society puts onto her guilt that she shouldn't have had. And because of that, she ends up doing drugs, married to Bobby Brown, and dead. And she would be alive had society. She would be alive had society been more open and accepting. And she could be her true self. That's the argument of the movie. That's the that's the 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 argument of the movie. Now, um, it was an incredibly uninteresting movie, right? The one of the greatest voices of all time, who had the most screwed up relationship with her dad that you can imagine. Her dad was a manager, stole all her money, sues her, all that. You you have not all, all of the interesting parts of her story in my opinion, the interesting parts of her story get, um, get buried underneath, um, her, uh, get buried underneath her sex life, right? That somehow. So now if Darwinism is true, sex is the, the most important thing, right? Freudianism is the natural outworking of, of Darwinism is the philosophical natural answer is the natural anthropology of Darwinism. And, um, we are who we sleep with because that mm. is how our, our, we are our DNA. And so who we sleep with is how our DNA is passed on. It's the natural outworking of Darwinism. Um, and, but it's an incredibly uninteresting story. Freudianism is a really on is, is an ugly, uninteresting story that turns us into a competition between our base desires, our our id, and the the superego of society trying to uh, uh, press us into a mold. That's the story that they told about Whitney Houston. Mm. And so the voice, I mean, arguably the greatest greatest voice of the last, uh, of recorded history. Uh, recorded musical history, um, female voice. You end up discounting her as an artist because all you can, because you're so obsessed with sex. Mm. All you can think about is who has she slept with and who has she not slept with. Wow. When you've got some of the greatest art ever, you end up having to cut out the artistry you can't glory in the music because you're so obsessed with who she opened her legs to and didn't open her legs to, right? It's, it's ruining in, in my opinion, they're ruining the, the point of telling that story by trying to turn it into a propaganda piece, right? But propaganda always ruins, ruins the story, right? So, um, and and what's hard is then you walk away saying, "Is that what? Is, what? Which parts of that are true or not?" Rather than walk away saying, "Like, man, it's so sad that her she was so tortured while creating such beauty, right? That such a broken vessel can create such beauty, right? You end up um, changing the way the world really actually is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, so, so uh, and so you don't end up with people going off and saying, "Man, I should." I should practice my art better. Um, if she, you know, if so, if the, you know, look at the, look at the, the beauty of that, right. You, the, the things that you could have gotten out of even a tragedy, right. You, you know, Hamlet's a, a great example of this where it's a tragedy, but if you're paying attention, you walk away s- saying, I should, I should not 
revenge is not a good idea. I should drop my bitterness and revenge. That's it's destructive, right? You don't, you walk away saying, man, society's terrible. And they destroyed her. Uh, they destroyed her. Yeah. Right. Um, and you know, her dad was terrible. He did destroy her. I mean, he really, he really did. But there's he was a different a story force. there because you're talking about the, the verse. Now you're talking about fathers mimicking the father. Yeah, and, exactly. That he's not being that kind of father and that leads to a tragic life. Yeah. I think Foxcatcher is a good example where you have a, you have similar storylines. Foxcatcher is the story of the uh, the American Olympic wrestling team. Yeah, when it was purchased by um, the the uh, the homosexual billionaire, um, and I, it's he, he they he is a homosexual. He's a billionaire. He is a monster as well, um, but they set up a series of fathers and compare this series of fathers. Right. And so you walk away from this movie uh, that has a lot of the same elements saying, man, I got, I want to go love my boys. I want to go be a better dad to my boys because you look at what being a bad dad can bring into the world. They don't focus in on the fact that he's a homosexual, although you pick it up. Um, and if you know the story much, you know, that's part of it. Um, they, they deal with it in, I think, uh, um, in a, and I mean, I think, I think they, the Whitney Houston movie was classy. They did a classy job dealing with her sins. That was one of my concerns is, you know, it, there was some ugly moments in her life and I think they dealt with it in a classy way. Um, but in Foxcatcher, you have a similar tragic story, but you walk away saying, it's so important that a dad is good to his boys. Okay, so... Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, there's ways to do it where the right thing, the right... where The, the way you're supposed to understand it, you grab the story. The Bible does that constantly. All the time. The Bible does that yep. constantly. If we're paying attention, there's a lot of... Look at Solomon, right? There's, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Look yeah. at David. You look at... There's all sorts of sins and indiscretions in the story, but you walk away knowing and understanding what? the world that God made better. And you can do that with stories that involve, like, let's say that that, that um, I mean, I don't, I don't actually know enough, but let's say that you really did have um, that Whitney Houston really, you know, was somebody who was tempted by lesbianism her whole life. Now they make it clear. She didn't act on it her whole life, that it was something she did when she was young. But let's say that was, you can tell, you can still tell that story, right? That you can still tell the truth about that story. Um, that that's not what, what they did is they didn't tell the truth about the story. And so you end up without personal responsibility and you end up without her dad being responsible for his role without her, um, you know, he, without the, uh, without anybody having to take responsibility because it's your, it's the audience's fault, right? But the audience walks away guilty rather than the, the actual characters of the story. So you were, you brought that up to talk about why they went at stories Oh but, yeah, but, right. But but the reason I'm bringing that up is because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out I how just, far your vehicle has backed up yet to the question. Right. So, 
Um, <laughs> this is always the problem. No, it's not. This uh, is this is the feature. <laughs> yeah, this is the feature. So the um, so but they so they, they know exactly what they're doing, right? They they believe their worldview fundamentally, and so their stories are actually flowing out of their faith. Mm-hmm. We don't know our own faith. We don't believe our own faith. And so what we do is we say stories are powerful and say, what do I want to, what, what, how do I want to be influential? Right. What influence do I want to have? And then we try and back a story over that manhole. Right. We, we try and, we try and back uh, into that story rather than saying how, what does it look like to, be as strong of a Christian as I can that really understands my own faith that really ha- digs in and embraces the, the cosmology and the metaphysic of the world as God made them. How do I become wise to understand how to live well in the world God made and then just tell true stories from, from that perspective, be, be good at my craft of storytelling um, be good at whatever craft God has given me to do from a position of somebody who's growing in the Lord, right? Somebody who is trying to understand wisdom and wanting wisdom and, and growing in virtue. And uh, they have, they have come to understand that if you just find somebody who truly believes is a true believer in, in their worldview, then just let them tell stories that that's how you make the worldview look convincing. You don't make the worldview look convincing by storytelling, right? You believe it and then tell stories. Now, and this is connected to the Victorian era because there, what happened was that somehow in their, their, their moral understanding of the world, they're under, they bought into a different story, a different narrative. Yep. Um, and a that's, different, a, a different fundamental cosmology of the world. Yeah. And that's what started to split them from they wanted respectability in that new world right and so then and because they bought into that cosmology they said well the old cosmology that's not respectable anymore we want respect in this new world and so then you start to see this sliver of splitting between the fundamental and how do you what is it really the 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 dividing because i I don't want to say post yeah so the divide is between you've got an optimistic eschatology that begins being separated from the doctrine of total, from a, a, the anthropology of total with total depravity. Okay. Right. So, and that's where the divide begins to happen is the people that hold to total depravity um, begin backing away from uh, an optimistic eschatology because the optimistic, the optimistic, optimistic eschatology is being, taken by the the secular people who are denying who are denying the, the fundamentals for Jesus they're denying the the virgin birth they're denying the res- they eventually even are denying the resurrection of the virgin birth it's always the first to go because people don't realize it because in a non-covenantal world the virgin birth doesn't make sense right 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 yeah it's just seen a, as a um as a a show of power, right? It's God's show of power, but that's because you no longer have a fundamentally integrated worldview 
integrated understanding of the world where the covenant holds all things together. Yeah. I mean, that's what makes the virgin birth important and good news. It's amazing to me that you could have that type of view that rejects the virgin birth while there's a flaming gas ball of fire in the universe. (laughs) (laughs) Just sorry. Like what? Like that doesn't blow your mind like that. You're not tripping over that. Like the virgin birth is like, yeah, that can happen. Look at this sun. <laughs> like, you know, you have to fundamentally have a change of what the universe is, the cosmology to, to d- disconnect or discount the realities of the virgin birth. I just don't like, right. which means you have to go insane because you have to not believe your eyes. Right. Right. And- but and that's but that's why it's that's why the astron the our discussions about astronomy are so important. Yeah, because they're that's right. Because one of the things that classical astronomy taught you to do was to believe your eyes. Medieval astronomy taught you to believe your eyes. Classical uh, the the new astronomy that's that it's it comes right on the heels. Um, you know it it. So the the new astronomy that says you can't picture this place from here. Yeah. You can't look up because there is no such thing as up. Right? That's the the new astronomy tells you when we look at the sky we're not looking up because we're not the center. Right. You, you maybe you're looking out or you're looking but you're not looking up. Well, we we are looking up. That's the experience that we're having. We're looking up at the sky, but they they've convinced us that we're not looking up. <laughs> so you can't trust anything anymore, right? Um, G.K. Right. Chesterton says if you want if you want to convince somebody that their neighbor is not human, right? Um, convince them first that they're not that when they look at the sky they're not seeing what they're seeing, and then they'll look at your neighbor and see dark emptiness as well. That's so facts it is right so uh the and it's but it's it's we're it's word games that they're playing right they're just trying to retell a different story and um they this is the myth of the flat people believing in a flat earth starts during this time right you start getting the myth of the middle age the myth of the Middle Ages, the myth of believing in flat Earth, the myth of uh, uh, the the um, all, all of those things begin during this time, right? Okay. So the in- invention of the Middle Ages, as you had the classical world where you had the freedom, you had freedom of thought, and now you have the Enlightenment show up, and the freedom of thought is restored. But you had the Dark Ages in between, and the Middle Ages where freedom of thought wasn't there, and all right. Where they believed the Earth was flat, and they didn't—they didn't know that they—they uh, they thought they were the center of the world, and you know, you get all of those, all that stuff invented um, during this time. It's uh, th- that's not—it's and it's just not true, right? Nobody believed the world was flat in the Middle Ages. It's just like it's just ridiculous. They all knew more astronomy than we than any of us do. Um, so, I'm sorry. I, I see right now. I can let you go. I'm just trying to manage your time here. I'm trying to manage this time because I know you got to run in a minute. But I got to get because we haven't even talked about prayer yet. And I want to get there. But I have to ask, why did the fundamentalists give up 
on a doctrine that they knew was a, a valuable one? Why did they let the left have, why did they let the, this new cosmological understanding run rampant with the doctrine that they knew was true? Why did they give that up? Or was it like, um, oh, we can only preserve certain things, so we preserve the things that were fundamental, and we felt everything else would work itself out? But this sounds like th- that this uh, hopeful um, view of the future and the, the the effect of the gospel, they let that go with, with them instead of saying, no, that you don't understand. You don't get what you want apart from this. Yeah. I, at this so here's here's my understanding, and this is from mostly from reading a lot of, uh, so I, I've made a sort of special study of Victorian poetry. I really really like it. Here's a, a really good resource. Um, Victorian types, Victorian shadows, on sort of a shifting, changing. Um, understanding of the person that happens during the Victorian age uh-huh. um, the, and, and the, the metaphors. Um, so the way the bio, the shifting use of the Bible, if that makes sense. So the Bible is shifted towards uh, use by individuals um, as and the the typology be, is more and more applied to individual experience rather than corporate experience. And isn't that part of what um, the Catholic Church was concerned about? Yeah. Well, so you have um, you have the rise of the Baptist Church during this time. You have the the and the accusation, and this is not true of all individual Baptists. But I get the what the accusation is about is that you you went you you reject one pope so that every man can become a pope mm-hmm. right that's kind of the the accusation and with the rise of the printing press everybody being able to have a Bible you, know, you do get a lot of the a lot of the the cults that you know the destructive cults and the the Gnostic cults and you know they they grow up during this time you know um, and the rest and a lot of them are restorationists that say well the ch- christianity has been lost but now we have restored it so the mormons the jehovah's witnesses um the seventh day baptists who eventually combine with um the adventists to become the seventh day adventists who then actually eventually return to orthodoxy um in kind of an official capacity so that's a pretty interesting story um, in and of itself, but they start off as heretics and then generations down the road repent of many of their heresies. I don't know what do you would you even do with that? Uh, that's not something that I would have said was possible probably until you start reading. You're like, oh, they've got like a mass repentance denomination, denomination wide. It's, um, but we see that in the fourth uh, grade denomination too. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Um, so, the uh, so you've got those sorts of movements going on at the same time. Well, the thing that has really fractured society, though, is the move, the mass move to the cities, with the mechanization of society, with the mechanization of a lot of the traditional work 
uh, economic uh, that, the, fam- that yeah. the family did together, right? So you have a shift. So you, it used to be that um, families had to work together, you know, for uh, and and produce a lot of their own, you know, what they needed to survive. Uh, well, with the mechanization of everything, you have a shift and and a breakdown of a lot of the traditional structures. Um, and so you see this in, so the, and so this is what I mean by um, one of the last writers of the old public morality was Jane Austen is she actually spans this change in her personal life um, and, and writes with the old understanding of public morality, but you see the rise of London in her novels, the rise of the cities, the beginning of this breakdown um, she writes uh, in a way that resists it, right? That wants to hold on to the old conception of family and um, and public morality. But then, you know, as you move into the romantics, um, they embrace the breakdown and have a new, more private understanding of morality. Now, there are the romantic movement in Germany is the Christian response to the enlightenment right there so the roman the german romantics many of them are christians there are some non-christian romantics as well but many of them are that's translated into english by non-christian romantic poets they grab onto the romantic theology uh the christian romanticism of germany and secularize it into english for some of them it becomes a benefit. So guys like Wordsworth end up being converted in the process. Um, guys like she- uh, you know, Shelley, wait, Coleridge was already a Christian and he, and he brings a lot of it, a lot of his, this rom- German romantic restoration of Christianity theology, although it's a, it individualizes a lot of it, but it's a real Christian response to the enlightenment. Coleridge, you know, he, he's pulling it over. He's, he's a Christian, but then, and Wordsworth is not a Christian, but is his best friend ends up becoming a Christian. Uh, Shelley uh, is not a Christian. Byron is not a Christian. They grab on and secularize the romantic theology. Uh, and you get a, an individualization um, of every, of everything, a de-civic, de-civicizing of man to a rabid sort of individualism and the Victorians um, there, they are not, they don't have a a theology that can resist it Mm. because the people that have the civic understanding of man are the ones that are running with a progressive secularization already. And so when the individualization of man comes in, uh, it's in response to this, to the enlightenment, right? Um, you, that, that man is not only a civic creature that man, that man has to stand individually before God, that, um, that's, that's in threat of being lost to the enlightenment, right? And the romantics respond and try and hold on to it. And the, the Christians say, yes, we've got to hold on to the individual and he's fallen and Jesus died for individuals. We stand individually before the throne and we have to get saved. And the, the ma- the major power, power, the powerful movement um, of gospel preaching is 
Methodists, Wesleyans, right? And they, they um, travel around preaching individual regeneration, which is a real thing, um, a, over against the attempts at a secular civic regeneration. And so it becomes a mark of orthodoxy. I'm a part of the right camp because I'm a part of the camp that still believes that individuals need to be saved and that you don't just save society as a whole without individuals getting saved. Um, it becomes a mark to say, and individuals are the center of it. And they just forget about the progress part. And then world war one comes along and s- puts the last nail in the coffin. There's no more optimism after seeing the mechanization of war and the, the, breakdown of so it it cements the breakdown of the generational family that begins with people leaving the farm for the city leaving the rural leaving their family for the city right so it, it's a real i mean it's a, it's a it it's um it, it's what leaves room for dispensationalism it's it's what leaves room for the not the, just leaves the pes- room it actually pessim- yeah it, it makes it necessary almost right yeah it's that, the only way to ma- it's the only way to make sense of it yeah and so when, so the, mm. so there's this so the the pessimism that's setting in that comes with the breakdown the society breakdown the so- social breakdown that pessimism is uh that is wet cement that dries as dispensationalism, at least in America, it dries as dispensationalism. So much to go through with that, Jason. I, I feel like I need to go. There's so much to go through because we, you, I know for the sake of time, you jumped to put a lot of things together, but there's still <laughs> this split that's happening in like late 1800s, early 1900s, right up to the, where you yeah. see the really, well, go ahead. Because dispensationalism begins in the late 1800s, yeah, it becomes popular um, between the wars, between World War One and World War Two. It becomes the uh, it it becomes the dominant strain in the 60s and 70s. Yep, and right. that's so, where you see really the kind of, and you see the resurrection with the Jesus people preaching the gospel. You see mm-hmm. a huge. Um, gospel push that has get ready for the rapture behind it. So you have a, now it has a gospel. It's funny. The gospel always has eschatology, doesn't it? It has a gospel push with a different eschatology than it had from two generations ago or three generations ago. But the, but world war one convinced the secularists of pessimism too. Right. So you switch. So you, I mean, you get the, um, you get the climate pessimists, you know, at the same time that you get dispensationalism, you get, um, you get the, uh, nuclear war fallout pessimists at the same time. Right. So the pessimism is universal. Um, and so the church, so the pessimism is a, is a worldliness that the church has fallen into and we adjust our theology to Mm. fit, the wor- to fit the world's eschatology, um, and it, it's effective, right, for a time, which is how, how what always justifies our worldliness. Um, but so then, the, within the optimist ones, become guys like what Hitler, 
Are the Optimus well, Cult guys like who are, who are like we're going to change the future because you got a lot of that happening in the early 1900s too. You see it with yeah. Joe Wilson. You see the you know the Great New Deal. You see all these different things that starts coming up. So the eugenic all the eugenicists movements were very optimistic. Ah, oh. right. so um, because it, because if you think if you, if you think about it, if by oh. if say eventually secularism becomes bio, bio, biologyism biologicalism or something right and so um ha- but how do you you if we're going to move if we're going to have an optimistic understanding of the human race and we are our biology then you've got to control it right and so you get all the eugenics movements as that were very progressive so to speak right so, you know that's interesting because that's exactly what i see happening again right now the the eugenics movement the transhumanism movement um world economic forum uh all of the 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 climate change guys these folks are the they're the progress we even label them the progressives right mm-hmm. but um they have the most hope for the future because of how they intend even with COVID, how they intend to have control over yeah the gene right over the human, how the body can work, what we can do to manipulate it. And I look at that. I'm like, these guys must be storing up something for God's people use rightly. Right. Because, <laughs> right, right, right. Right. Because, but what they're doing is like, there's, it's amazing. I mean, you're able to grow an ear, you know, off of the DNA cell. And I know they don't have any good intentions for that. And I know that they seek to use it as control, but it wouldn't be the first time that God has taken a Canaanite place and all the fruits and honey and milk he stored up for his people. So I don't have yeah. a pro- I see it. And I'm like, oh, let's make sure we have some salt around so that this thing don't spoil. <laughs> right. But at the same- the, and it's the Roman roads. Yeah. Problem. Absolutely. Right. Like, the Caesars did not mean the Roman roads for good. The Roman roads were so that he could get his oppressive forces out as far as he could right. quickly enough to be able to kill opposition. But I uh, am seeing Jason. But though, that Paul still used those Roman roads. It's the reason that's why we yeah. have the gospel now. Um, I am still seeing though that that is the mo- because they and this is what I was talking about earlier because of their perspective they are wrongly crafting what they think the future is going to be. And there's a sin in that. You don't, you know, man can plot his, what he wants for the future, but God is the one who has last say so over what's going to happen. So there's an arrogance in that for sure. But then there's also a failure for people to act like that. The gospel itself doesn't have a regenerating effect or sanctifying effect beyond the individual as the individual engages. Right. And so, well, so this is, so CS Lewis as a medievalist, predicted transhumanism yeah right so right he did yeah so he and and he said here is the thing that we that is that is coming that we need to be ready for that will destroy this progressive movement right both he he saw both that it's something that the church needs to be ready to oppose and it's going to be its own self-destruction that transhumanism is going to be the babel moment in which they will stop being able to, to communicate. communicate. And, yeah. he's, and look how right he is, right? Where um, now you see That's people so say, true. 
Oh. Well, ma- man, woman, can we do those words communicate? Right. You see the beginning of the the babble unraveling. You see, Miss Universe happening all around us. You see the whole Miss Universe thing. No, I haven't. Yet. So the the lead person of the president of Miss Universe is a transgendered uh, woman. So it's a man. It's a man who's who's got the little surgery thing going on. And one of the things that he said was now. Uh, Miss Universe is going to be run. It's going to be run by a woman, and it's like, and it's going to be good for all women. And I'm like, but you ain't. A w-. I could imagine a white dude being like, "Finally, black people done made it." It's like, <laughs> oh, have we? We, we we done made it, huh? Like, okay, you know, <laughs> but that's what happened. Is so, but the, like, the, like you said, like being a, able to communicate. A white, a white guy in blackface running BET. Yeah, <laughs> he's saying, yeah. saying, don't worry, we now finally got a black guy at the top. At the top, <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna take care of y'all. Trust me. I got you. Uh, that would be so. But you're right. The communication is funny sketch. Well, even trying to communicate any kind of way. Okay, so uh, man, Jason, I talked for this for about another hour. You got 30 minutes. You got to run. I hate giving prayer 30 minutes, but we have to. Maybe we may do a round two next week on this because I think this is important. In, in all of this, where do I? I guess I don't want to say is there a failure that, that we have in this or where have where does your prayer metaphysic come into this conversation? Well, I mean, I think it prayer, the question is always what kind of world do we live in? And in a world where God is is fundamentally in charge, fun, you know, he's he's all powerful, meaning that that doesn't mean he's the, just the strongest. It means he has all the power, meaning anybody that has power is borrowing it from him. That's what right. Jesus You're, said, right? Right. Yeah. Right. So he. So that um, that that all in a world where God is all powerful, um, and and that he has he's he has set it up in a covenantal way. Um, where our job is to have faith, right? To see his promises and believe them, live according to them. Um, and that the, the world functions that way because the Holy Spirit is omnipresent here, communicating Christ to his people. Commu- um, we're communing with Christ by the Holy Spirit, uh, who's all present, um, all powerful, and who's the guide of this place, um, and the, and he's set it up in a covenantal way. It makes sense to pray, right? And especially if we have been made by the resurrection of Christ and the adoption uh, by the Spirit, made the friends of God, right? The the um, that's a covenant. That's a covenantal office that we as Christians hold, right? That, that, that um, advisor or something like that to the king would be a, a, how that's what a friend is. As somebody that always has the ear of the, the authority is what friend means. Um, in, in, a, in that older covenantal setting, I think 
friend now has multiple meanings in modern English, and we have a dearth of friendship, you know, in in our culture, and because you know we think we have, we say, oh, I have thousands of friends on Facebook, but we don't have any friends. In, we don't have friends in real life. We have to hire professional friends. We call them counselors um, uh, to to be able to get advice, right? Because because we, we don't have friendships, and so you've got this breakdown of of society um, everywhere because of our cosmology. But we see it at the center of it is the fact that we don't pray more. Right? The, um, when Spurgeon hears a wait, joke, say that again. Say that again. Wait, wait. So the breakdown, the evidence of our breakdown at the center of is is our lack of prayer. We, our lack of prayer, right? At that, that's the that that's the evidence that it that society is broken. That we that we no longer live in the same, right? That that the the that our we have a civic a fundamental civic breakdown. There's not prayer. Um, prayer is not a, a regular part of of our civic life of our. Uh, family lives of our of our church life even right like um i don't know when the last time i heard the the more the sunday morning service called prayer right the, but that's what that used to be the we were gathered we're gathering for prayer house on sunday of mornings. Prayer. house of prayer right like that um the whole thing is prayer because because uh, our lives um lives lived before god our lives Filled, filled with prayer and everything we do because in the older liturgical understanding of church service was that you're gathered for prayer, right? That worship is part of our prayer. Uh, that singing is part of our prayer. Um, and, but because prayer is a conversation between us and a God who is present, who is promised to listen and promised to answer that even the Lord's supper is part of prayer because it's his answer to prayer that the sermon is we we come in and we say lord speak to us and prayer and the sermon is a is god's answer to is is god's answer in the conversation of prayer right so the older liturgies are all set up as conversations between god's corporate people and and god who responds by the uh who responds in the liturgical setup right so we all of that is gone because we don't have a cosmology because we have a cosmology that is physics based and not spiritual fundamentally not whole spirit spiritual in the sense that the holy spirit is present everywhere um and constantly and um the that this place is held together is sustained continually sustained by the presence of the spirit and the Christ who sent the spirit and the, the father and the son who sent the spirit sent the spirit so that he could hear our prayers and um, be the one that is the presence of the father and the son um, communicating between us and communicating the son to us. Uh, we don't, our word communication has been gutted to the, to the, to mean information transfer. Um, but it used to be, you know, when you say it used to be commute, you know, you're communing with someone in communication, right? So we are receiving Christ 
by the spirit. That's why we right. don't get communion because we don't understand that word of communion. Yeah. So it's that we, but, but we don't even think that is possible because he's not physically present and we've, everything has become just matter, not matter, in one sense. matter and energy transfer. Yeah. So, so at best it has to do with communication of ideas in our head and we get the right ideas and, um, we re- or we remember something and we're, we're reminded of something that we, um, that is important or, but, um, but there's, but in prayer, we can actually have communion, but we don't have communion with each other either. Right? We, we don't have those sorts of deep loving relationships. We're individuals here. Okay, Jason. We're in- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Um, the, uh, we are, we're we're more like ghosts haunting a place than we are like people living in communities that's gnosticism Um, though right in that what it is yeah gnosticism is is the is what just our gnosticism is what justifies our experience of it but you know you listen to the it's crazy you know you listen to the 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 folk music of the 60s the funk music of the 70s the um, the the uh the rap of the late '90s, early 2000s, where you've you've got Gnosticism and this experience of dislodgement, um, this experience of uh of ennui, the experience of of not of not having a place in the world. It's all it it fills our art to the point that it's just we think it's normal. That we don't ex- that we we don't we aren't able to live our own lives because we're exiled experientially. We're we're exiled from our own lives. We don't have deep fellowship, deep communion. We hope that we're going to get it through love. You see this cycle in pop music. We it starts off with "I love her, want to marry her." We think that's going to get us. We, that's going to remove our experience of dislodgement. It doesn't. And so the next phase is sex is going to do it and that doesn't. And so then you get drugs again (laughs) and then you get the end of that genre. Right. And you see this, you see the, the each genre goes through this over and over and over. And then, you know, somebody comes back around and says, no, it's maybe love will work. And then it doesn't. And so then sex and so then drugs and then, the, end genre of the dies. death of the genre, right? So you you see this over and over, um, but it's because we're looking for a way to reattach ourselves to reality. We're trying to find a door back into reality, um, it, uh, away from the ghostly experience of not exper- not being able to live our own lives um, because of the the exile uh, from reality. Does prayer is prayer is so? It seems like. Prayer is a part of a package of communion. It is, yeah. And it's not something yeah. that's separate from it. You know what I mean? So you need all of these. These are all working together in one way or another. Yeah. So you need you need a community. You need worship. You you need uh, and but and prayer is something that undergirds all of it. And so, um, but it, but most of the time when we pray, it feels like we're just 
bouncing words off the ceiling. Right. Uh, and, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One, we don't, we, we pray such general prayers that we never know if they're answered or not. Right. Um, we don't get specific. And this is, a, this is something that I'm grateful to my wife for because general prayers just make her nuts. It's like, let's get specific. So we do the math. How much money are we short this month? We're going to pray for that amount. Right. <laughs> and right. We, you know, um, what, what is it that we actually, what is it that we're actually praying for? And it, and so I've been blessed to have a wife that has an, insisted that our prayers get specific because then you know, they're answered or not. Um, and, when you live a life where you're praying for specific things and you see them answered, you realize, Oh my gosh, God is paying attention and he's very specific, specifically paying attention to me and to my prayers, to our prayers as a family. Um, I, I, my family hasn't done this, but I know families that write down their prayers so they can go back over them and, and check them off as they're answered. You know, um, I'm starting um, to God's answering so many prayers and what ends up happening a lot of times is that when things happen that uh, are tight or rough or get a little bumpy, uh, you tend to forget. And unless the spirit brings it back to you, remind you, like, you remember, like, just last week or yesterday, the prayer that you asked God for and he, he answered that? Why are you tripping? Right. Yeah. Right? Like, what's wrong with you? And so it's, it's like sometimes just having it in a place to open it up and be like, yep, God answered that one. I was telling my yeah. wife, it's like, I think it's be helpful for us because, you know, you just see like God answered that one, God answered that one, God answered that one. So we've been very, very mindful now of God's answered prayers so that our kids can, because for me, what I've been thinking about is I want to see my, I want my kids to know that God answers our prayers and I want them to see him answer our prayers. And they'd be like, Oh, well, it's simple. Why don't we, why don't we just start praying? Why don't we just stay in a, a attitude and, and, and you know, a, a tradition or a consistency of prayer. And then that's, we, we solve that problem, you know? Um, right. And so I can see writing it in books. It makes, it makes sense to do yeah, that. It does make a lot of sense. And I'm not, I'm not, consistent enough to just, I know I'm, I'm working <laughs> do, on it. Yeah. So, but, but, and, and Aaron, Aaron and I, a number of times have said, man, we got to write down some of these stories because of the, like we, we, once we, you know, when we were starting a school, we had our numbers doubled from one year to the next, but that doesn't mean that your money doubles immediately. Right. So right. we were short 32 desks. So we, um, and and uh, so we got we got together. We prayed for thirty two desks. And that afternoon, we got a phone call um, from another school in town that said, "Hey, if you'll move them, we've got we just replaced our desks, um, and we got all the old desks." And so we grabbed a truck and we went up there, and and um, we had exact double the number of desks we actually to the number exactly double the number of desks we asked for and you realize we're thinking smaller than god apparently it was like why'd you only ask for that many do you not think i'm bringing you other people too (laughs) so and 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 we ended up the next year filling all of the desks we had right so um you uh, or the you know you but when you when you take when you step out and take risks in prayer you see some, you see that happen, but it's just a risk being alive. I mean, I don't know the number of times I've gone to church with an overdrawn bank account. Like, all right, Lord, 
going into church and my bank account's overdrawn pray that you would provide. And he does, you know, um, that, that you never, you never go into Tuesday without, with that overdrawn bank account, even when you have no idea when right. you know, when you go in, in prayer. Right. Um, and you know, the, and that's something that we don't think about very often. And pastors don't think about very often, uh, too, sometimes, um, is how many people are coming into church in that situation. We don't generally live in cultures where you can come in and say, Hey, I'm 30 bucks overdrawn. I'm, you know, the first time Aaron, Aaron and I got married super young, we opened our first bank account together and we, uh, overdrew for our first time. And we're like, you know, a year married overdrew for our first time and um, went in and asked uh, Matt gray for help. Hey, we're, we're overdrawn 30 bucks. I don't know what to do. I'm, this is new to me. I'm, I'm new. And he was like, well, here, let me, here's, here's some, he gave us some cash and we went and covered it. And then we went to pay him back and I bounced the, bounced the check that I paid him back with. <laughs> so new. I mean, I'm like, we're like 20 years old. We're trying to, figure out what we're doing. And he was so gracious and, and helped us and walked us through it. And, you know, and, um, as newlyweds, you need that. You need people in your life that can help you walk you through it. But we don't have communities generally where you can be open like that. And so, um, you, uh, the, but people come into church all the time with an overdrawn bank account. They don't know what to do. They're just, most of the time they're just embarrassed and they're trying to figure out what to do. And, um, but learning to be able to say, well, let's pray together before you say any, you know, I mean, sometimes people just need help and, and that, and that's great, but we should always pray. Okay. How much, how much are you overdrawn? How much, how much do you have left in the month? And right, learn to say, okay, let's pray for that and watch for God to provide. Cause he does. Um, that's the kind of world we live in where God is that attentive to our lives that, you know, the dollars and cents are part of it. You know, that's funny. If we actually believe that a reflex of prayer would be the first thing that comes to our minds and there's so much to say about this. All right. So let's talk. I I think I want to do this next time. Let's talk about um, the metaphysics of prayer next time. What is prayer? What is it for? Go ahead. So with our book list, um, and this this actually ties into um, it ties into uh, what we were talking about with the with the movies and with um, specifically with uh, with the um, oh man the the movie with Antonio Banderas oh Puss in Boots Puss in Boots yeah uh, Orthodoxy is one of the ones you wanted to put on the yes, book list. Orthodoxy. Well, the fourth chapter of orthodoxy is all about all of this, including the kind of the metaphysics of prayer. So, okay. So I'll or, jump on that. orthodoxy. Chapter four is, uh, it's called the ethics of Elfland. Um, and, uh, it's, <laughs> I saw that chapter and I was like, well, do I need to read this one? <laughs> That's so funny. This is, yeah. it, it's the, I mean, it, I, it's the one, this is, it's it's the it's the one about cosmology uh, and a, a cosmology 
what what kind of world do you think you live in and that that's what makes the difference in terms of how much you pray and don't pray mm. because when they, the reason that you get social gospel from the meta, from a metaphysic of naturalism is that if i don't do something to change it then it won't get changed i mean this is that's a faithless attitude too it is but yeah i mean this is a you know arrested development um their their breakthrough album which has all the numbers that i so i can never remember what it's called but it's a it's a good example of what of social gospel you know and they've got that song where it's like oh I go to my grandma and she prays and she prays and she prays and nothing ever changes. Maybe instead of praying, we should get down to the city hall and do something about it. That <laughs> uh, you know, they and they grew up in that social gospel um, type of church. And but that's and you know, just thinking like that, I think that there is a there is that. Um, reading Jay Gresham Machen's "What Is Faith" has really, really. And talking about it with you has really changed because there is a point where people will choose to do um, to be faithless. And what I mean by that is they don't believe God and then act according to what God has said. And that's the second half is like if you if God has promised something or he said something or he's then you move and operate in in belief with what right. God has said. We don't we don't do that second part very well. No. We keep waiting for something to pick us up and move us in. It's like, well, well, God, I believe you. I'm going to go operate in what you said is true. And it's that's so simple. But we just if we if we actually think about it, and that's what prayer has really been really interesting. It's like, OK, um, praying and praying the scriptures has been helpful, too. It's like, OK, I need to know something about God. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and the kind of world that he's made. It's, it's really interesting. All this is really connected. And when you start praying, you start realizing, like, oh, OK, God said this. I'm going to go operate and do that. All right. I'm, and you just keep doing it. And then as you operate, you find that God is blessing you. God is fulfilling what he said he's going to do. And then when it's funny, when you have sin in the camp, you start realizing, like, oh, I need to be praying against this sin and ask God for yeah. to sanctify me against this. Oh, wait, it's happening right now. Let me praise God and thank God for that right now in prayer. Lord, thank you for sanctifying me this way. And and I found that prayer really becomes just something that happens constantly. Like you said about Spurgeon earlier, he yeah. got a joke that he laughed so hard that he had to sit on a log. And as he's sitting on the log, he's like, let us pray and thank all of a sudden, prayer isn't something that's like, oh, just happening in this, all right, I got to go pray and drum up some time. And when you start praying specifically and you start seeing the world that way, you start praying instantaneously over everything, constantly. You start seeing good things and you thank God for them. Even today, I was just thanking God for the service that my wife gives to me and she doesn't even, she does it effortlessly. And I was praising God for that. And I was praying, thanking God for that. And I was praying that God would bless her and how can I bless her? And, you know, it just created a domino effect of how I started living because of it. And so it's amazing. I think there's so much faithlessness yeah. in, in, in our lives that when we pray, we don't believe God. You know, <laughs> because in the way right. you know you don't believe guys because you don't operate after you get done praying, you know? Yeah. Or you, instead of praying, 
you immediately go to some sort of coercive option. <laughs> right. You know, the, or thanklessness um, too. Thank thanklessness. And I mean, I, I, I don't know the number of times it just happened again recently. And I, you know, had, had to go ask for forgiveness for it where you know, a kid does something and you're like, what is wrong with you? Why did you, and you, you go into, I've got to make you feel how yeah, stupid you are right? to get you to not ever do this again. Right. Rather than saying, okay, let's pray together. Let's go before the Lord and seek an internal shift. And, and have I given you the skills that you need? I mean, when, when our kids right. were little, we used to train them to make sure their body could do the thing we were asking them to do before we, before we required it of them right is is can your like do do your little feet and little hands have the the dexterity yet to do the thing i'm asking you to do or am i just like go do this thing but you know so you train them and then you practice and then you know when you go to when when you require that of them you know they can do it and then you know, but, but for some reason with teenagers you just you've at least for me, I don't. When I approach them without faith, I just am like, "Just do this thing. What is wrong with you?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> and my my wife always says, "Man, raising boys takes a lot of faith." Trying to imagine the, in either of these two be, as men is is impossible. <laughs> just, <laughs> you know what I? Yeah, which is true. I mean, it's I mean, it's true with all kids. You raise raised by faith and not by works. And that's, yeah. you have, you depend on the promises of God, but you know, boys, I, it's the distance feels longer. <laughs> I've found that my faith is usually not so much. The amount of is not so much the problem because I found that I have a lot of faith in shame. So, you know what I yes. mean? I tend to, I have, so I'll, I'll, and I've had to repent of this. It's like, well, you don't want to have faith that sign of kind of faith in, in what God's ability to change a human heart and disciple him. Otherwise you would, but you find the easy <laughs> shortcut and find it in shame and thinking that if you put enough shame on this child, that you're yes. going to get them to do, well, you better go and repent. And it, and it yes. hurts because it's like, man, my faith and the amount of it ain't the problem It's where I'm putting it. Right. Oh you yeah. Know? No, that's a, that's a good point. And I, I mean, for me, it's, those places where I'm already struggling with shame when my kids do something. I know. Oh, those are the boy, you better uh, shut up. That... Time to end this. Turn it off. <laughs> Quick. I don't even want to talk I about it. <laughs> immediately respond with coercion uh, as the, yeah, when uh, it's really, it's my own shame. I'm trying, I'm trying to like, you see it in your kids. Yeah. You see in your kids like, Oh, totally. and what you're really yeah. saying is don't be like me. Don't, don't be like don't, me. Right? Don't, don't, I but, need you not to be like me. <laughs> and, and they do actually, they need that. They do need that. Yeah. Right. Story. Right. right. They need, but, but, <laughs> but that's, but then you got to like trust in the, the blood of Jesus that it's all forgiven so that you can lay out your own things that you've done that you're ashamed of as lessons for them. <laughs> yeah. Like, Hey kid, let me tell you something. You don't that, want takes, that takes believing that when God says we're forgiven, we are to be able to do that with confidence. And that's, it's hard. I, I told, but somebody, I mean, it's I so good. But I told somebody, I was like, and I, I know God does it. I just don't know how. But 
I don't know how people get sanctified, sanctified apart from marriage and, and children. I just don't know how it happens. Right. <laughs> I know God yeah. does it and he does it really well, but I, I don't, I know, yeah. I know for me, I don't know how it, ha- how people, because what you go through with marriage and what you go through with your children and then you put relationships with people on top, anybody else in the world I can get away from. Right. Jason, anybody in the, I don't care who they are, boss, whoever it is, yeah. I can tolerate you enough because I I got a time period. We're done. You can't get away from your wife. You can't get away yeah. from your kids. There's some people you just. Son, I see you in church Sunday once a week. Right. I, I might not have to see you anymore for the rest of the week if I don't want to. Right. So in the grocery store, hi, bye. We good. That's all I need. Have, I'm not. Have you seen the TV show Severance? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, yep. is, that is some brilliant writing. And, man, it's convicting. To, yep. It really is. <laughs> the, the whole time I'm like, oh, ouch. And that's what sci-fi is good at, you know, story-wise. I think we need a lot more Christians working in sci-fi because oh, yeah. you see something Hands like down. this. And you're like, dang, they are getting to the heart of so much with, these, with this storytelling. But, you know, I walk away like, Oh man, what am I? How am I gonna? I need to. In, I need a more integrated communal life. Uh, <laughs> but uh. it's it starts with it starts with believing that the the blood of Jesus takes away those rivalries and the shame and the guilt and all the things that disrupt community and disrupt the ability to live well in the world God made. I mean, without without the blood of Jesus, none of it can happen. No, you're right, and I and it's yeah, you're right, and I can tell the spirit is at work with me in the raising of my kids because every time that I'm looking at them, all I see is God's patience for me. I, I it's like I can I'm not hearing the voice. I'm just telling you, my charismatic days are over, but it's almost like I do. Is like, is that how I treat you? It's right. like, oh, no, I know. oh, that one right there, bro. That oh, it's like, is that yeah. how I treat? I mean, I had, oh, I had to. Go ask my son for forgiveness just after 11 p.m. last night. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Lord. Because you're like, because you walk away and you're like, that's not, that's not, no, I've got it. That's not the kind of father God is. Not even, no. Thankfully, they've been, my kids have been, you know, my. My wife and I have been asking them forgiveness for a long yeah, time. Yeah, that's so right. It's been a culture. They're just like, I forgive you, of course. If you, you don't know, develop you that this. culture, I don't think <laughs> But it's still it. like, it's every time. It doesn't get easier, though. No, you know what, though? <laughs> that You're right. It doesn't, but it's kind of like cold plunging. It, it, oh, I've been, totally. I've been cold plunging lately. And um, the, the mental exercise that's there is the discipline, like Paul talks about beating his body. It, it, yeah. I am going to have to deal with this thing. And it's never going to get easy, but right. but the disciplines are in place to kick in. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. And through I the mean, work of the spirit, you know. Because so much of sanctification is just the the reformation of our habits, and that oh! and such a blessing. I'm I'm putting that down. Yeah. Reformation of habits. All right, you got to go. But, <laughs> I do. But here, listen. Next week. Um, also, too, when you get a chance, I want to call you and talk to you about MLK. I got some stuff thinking okay. about thinking about that. I got, I'm going to be on the road in just a minute. I'll call you when I get right. on the road next week. The metaphysics of prayer because we barely got into it. Yeah, this is and I good. think uh, and uh, orthodoxy that'll be our book. I'll, I'll I'll jump into that. Yep. All right, man. Yep. 
All right. Yeah, bye.